1999, Paul Thomas Anderson wrote and directed a film titled Magnolia. Now, it's pretty dark and gritty. I can't, as your pastor, recommend that you go see this film. But, just listen. It, it, this film follows the intertwining lives of several characters, each tragically broken, each one in their own way, isolated and looking for love. And it's a drama, and it's dealing with people's dark personal issues and for the most part, it's a pretty serious film. In fact, it's a little depressing. But more than halfway through the movie, there's a scene that completely kind of breaks with the genre of a drama. This scene occurs as each of the characters in the movie is coming to grips with the depth of their own lostness. Each one is coming to a crossroads where they're, they're about ready to make a, a tragic decision or, or at the cusp of maybe making a decision that could change their life for the better. And it's at this moment that the sky opens up and it begins to rain frogs, like big frogs, and like frogs breaking down uh, rooftops and, and shattering windshields and knocking some people out as they hit them on the head. Anderson said he wrote this scene because there's just those times in life when things are so bad and so mixed up that you need something from the outside, something other than your own resources to provide a moment of awe and clarity. In the film, the raining of frogs functions to wake people up from what they were doing. Some of the characters stop, literally, and they resolve to change. Some repent, some find healing, some find an ability to receive love, and one in particular, one character, hardens his heart even more, and in the end is judged. Now, as a church, we've been working through the book of Exodus and find ourselves this evening right in the middle of the plague narratives. Here's the setting. God created the world. Humanity rebelled against him, and as a result, every single one of us has been tainted in some way, shape, or form by sin. Don't get me wrong, we have good in our hearts, but it often comes out in unhealthy ways. God knew we needed rescuing, so he made a promise to this couple named Abraham and Sarah. And he promised that couple that they would have kids, would have kids, would have kids, would have kids, that would become this great nation known as Israel. And that God would bless these people, he promised to, so that they would then be a blessing to the entire world. That family of blessing, of course, is known as the Israelites. And in our story in Exodus, the Israelites have been enslaved in Egypt. And they've been there for nearly 400 years. The story we find ourselves in is the story of God rescuing his people. And he sent a man named Moses to confront Pharaoh, who is the king of Egypt, about letting Israel go free. So far in the story, Pharaoh has refused. And each time Pharaoh refuses in this story, God sends another plague to wake Pharaoh up. To either cause him to repent, or as in this case it seems, to cause his heart to harden even further. Now last week we looked at the first three plagues. And this evening we're going to pick up the story with the next three plagues. So if you have your pew Bible... Uh, it looks like this. You could find our section on page 63. And if you're a third through fifth grader cohort kid, I know you can read. So you can follow along in your Bible too. What I'm going to do is just read the text. And 
periodically I'll make a few comments, and then I'm going to preach on the text and, and get to what I think God is trying to say to us. So let's begin with prayer. Thank you, Lord, for the way you've already spoken to us in the hospitality of a neighbor here, in a time of prayer, through the truth of the words in a song, perhaps. And thank you for the way that you've given us your word, your authoritative scripture. And we confess, Lord, that while this is scripture, passages like this are, like this are strange and they're so foreign to us. And so we pray for your help in opening up this word in, um, and having a deeper sense of awe and wonder for who, who you are, but also give us help in hearing what this means for us today. Amen. So I'm in verse 20, which is at the bottom of page 63 on the left-hand side. It says the plague of flies. Then the Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning and confront Pharaoh as he goes to the river and say to him, this is what the Lord says, let my people go so that they may worship me. If you do not let my people go, I will send swarms of flies on you and your officials, on your people, and into your houses. The houses of the Egyptians will be full of flies. Even the ground will be covered with them. <clears throat> but on that day, I will deal differently with the land of Goshen, where my people live. No swarms of flies will be there so that you will know that I am the Lord in this land. I will make a distinction between my people and your people. This sign will occur tomorrow. Interesting, right? So this is the first time that it explicitly says, I'm going to do this plague, and I'm going to do it to your people only, not to my people. All right? Um, anyone have a fruit fly problem right now at your house? <laughs> I've seen some Facebook posts of yeah, apple cider vinegar and the, yeah, all these different little tips. They're so annoying. Like, fly... And they don't differentiate. Like, the flies don't just bug me, but not Corey, even though, you know, she's cuter and better person than I am. But they, they just attack everybody in the house. It, there are some people, as I mentioned last, last week, some scholars that, that try and figure all these out in naturalistic explanations. Like, well, maybe because the frogs died, it caused this huge uh, blossom of flies to come out. Last time I checked, though, natural flies don't, like, go, oh, you're an Israelite, I'm not going to bite you, I'm going to go bug these other people. It's just, the, 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 the gist of the story is that this is caused by God. He says it's going to happen, not today, it's going to happen tomorrow, so he gives a time, and it's going to happen to Egyptians, the Pharaoh in his house, and not to my people. Pretty interesting. And so the Lord did this. Dense swarms of flies poured into Pharaoh's palace and into the houses of his officials throughout Egypt, and the land was literally ruined, laid waste by the flies. We read this so quickly, and we just go on to the next thing. Just think for a moment how disgusting and annoying this would be. I was thinking about what could we... I've never really had flies attack me. I've had annoying flies. In fact, the kids will, my kids will tell you how annoyed I am. In, you know, you're in the bathroom, and there's one fly. Oh, and I've just got to get that fly. By the way, if, if you've ever had that, if you turn off the light, it'll land. You just listen to where it went, and then turn it on real quick, and you can get them. But I just... I also got one of those shocker rackets now. Oh my gosh, I have so much fun with that. But that's one fly driving me insane. Think about just flies all over. And if you ever, like, someone tickled you with a feather or something, just think about this. You, they're just everywhere. I mean, this is horrible. Okay, now that you're freaked out, let's just keep going. 
Um, so the Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, go sacrifice to your God. Basically, these flies are driving me crazy. Go sacrifice to your God where? Yeah, in the land. Uh, last time I checked, God said, no, Pharaoh, I want you to let my people go into the wilderness, right? I want you to let them free. Pharaoh's trying to compromise. He wants the flies out of Egypt, so he says, you can go sacrifice to your God, just do it here in the land. But Moses said, I'm in verse 26 now, Moses said, that would not be right. The sacrifices we offer the Lord our God would be detestable to the Egyptians, and if we offer sacrifices that are detestable in their eyes, will they not stone us? We must take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God as he commanded us. It's a little bit weird. Let me just pause there for a minute. The Egyptians had crazy sacrificial systems, not at this time in their history, but previously to this. They even sacrificed people. So the sacrifices of the Israelites, a cow, a lamb, a goat, these kind of things, birds, that wouldn't have been disgusting to the Egyptians. I think what he's getting at here is that Pharaoh's trying to trick Moses. You get the flies out, and I'll tell you what, you can sacrifice to your God, Yahweh, in Egyptian boundaries. Now, here's why this would be detestable. Because they'd be worshiping a foreign God on Egyptian soil. The people would see this, be enraged, and stone them to death. So it's kind of like when you think there's this great deal, you get a contract, and then there's fine print. Kind of like... Um, low calorie anything <laughs> low zero calories and chemicals you can't pronounce and yeah hope that hope that works out for you so um it's, it's kind of like the fine prints he says go ahead get the flies out of here you can sacrifice to your god in the land and moses is basically saying i'm i'm not stupid we're not going to do this we need to go out just like the lord said a three-day journey now kids a three-day journey doesn't sound very far if you're on foot right here's the funny thing about that word that phrase three-day journey in, ancient, in the ancient world, a three-day journey was like saying, leaving forever. Uh, here's another example. In the book of Jonah, Jonah goes to this city called Nineveh, and it's a giant, massive city. And it says that he, he had to take a three-day walk around the city. What that really means is that, not literally three days, it means he was there a very long time because it was such a big city. So saying I need to go on a three-day journey means we're leaving forever. And Pharaoh knew this, which is why he didn't want his slave labor force to leave. Pharaoh said, I will let you go to offer sacrifices to the Lord your God in the wilderness. So he's budged there, but you must not go very far. Now pray for me. Moses realizes he's out of, or Pharaoh realizes he's out of his depth, that his magicians can't control these flies, that he can't control these flies, and he needs uh, Moses' God to get rid of these. Moses answered, as soon as I leave you, I will pray to the Lord, and tomorrow the flies will leave Pharaoh and his officials and his people. Only let Pharaoh be sure that he does not act deceitfully again by not letting the people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. Then Moses left Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord, and the Lord did what Moses asked. The flies left Pharaoh and his officials and his people. Not a fly remained. But this time also Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not let the people go. Most of us don't have a Pharaoh over us. Um, even if you're in a bad work situation, please don't do the Israelites the injustice of saying, my boss is as bad as Pharaoh. Most of us aren't in that situation. But a lot of us do have adversaries. 
someone who has it out against you or someone that maybe you wronged a long time ago and they still have a grudge or some type of enemy. This is just telling to me that Moses didn't have to pray for this man, that this man has oppressed him and his people, um, and Egypt as a nation had oppressed his people for 400 years. I just, this precedes the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus tells us to pray for our enemies, pray for those who persecute you. So, um, yeah, just a little aside there. Fun things from the text. Okay, turning the page. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go and continue to hold them back, then the hand of the Lord will bring a terrible plague on on your livestock, in the field, on your horses and donkeys and camels, on your cattle, sheep and goats. But the Lord will make a distinction again, between the livestock of Israel and that of Egypt, so that no animal belonging to the Israelites will die. The Lord set a time and said, tomorrow the Lord will do this in the land. And the next day, the Lord did it. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one animal belonging to the Israelites died. Pharaoh investigated and found that not even one of the animals of the Israelites had died. Yet, his heart was unyielding. And he would not let the people go. Just one small comment here. All the livestock died? Because in like the next couple plagues, there's going to be hail and there's going to be boils. And the text says that this happened to the Egyptian cattle. So how did they all die here and yet still had enough to get these other plagues on them? This is pretty pretty simple Hebrew phrase. Um, the word for all here is the word kol. Can you say kol? Oh, you just said a Hebrew word for all. It also means all kinds or a whole lot. It's hyperbole. So literally this plague has wiped out massive amounts of all kinds of cattle and livestock, uh, but not literally every single one. Um, I think the point was made here with just wiping out a whole bunch, and then there's some left over for the other plagues to get later on. So we'll get that. Okay, then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of soot from a furnace literally a kiln, and have Moses toss it into the air in the presence of Pharaoh. It will become fine dust over the whole land of Egypt, and festering boils will break out on people and animals throughout the land. Ruth, do you know what a boil is? Your dad's a doctor. (laughs) A boil, kids, is not like water boiling. It's like these, Jonathan, tell me. Absolutely. A really bad sore that you get on your skin. And the, the, the nuance in Hebrew is that it's hot. It's like a burning sensation and uh, itchy. Uh, yeah, it's just, so, yeah, it wouldn't be fun to have a boil. Um, <clears throat> so um, they, they took soot from the furnace and stood before Pharaoh. Moses tossed it into the air and festering boils broke out on people and animals. The magicians could not stand before Moses. That's kind of a fun little phrase. Moses and Aaron stood before Pharaoh, it says in the text, but the magicians could not stand before Moses and Aaron. You you see that the Yahweh is showing himself superior to Pharaoh and his powers. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said to Moses. Wow. Wow. Okay, what a story. Um, Of course, it's my conviction that this is so much more than just a story, just a religious story even, or even more than just a history. 
Um, this is scripture, which means that it's significant because it reveals a little bit about who God is, and it's significant because it reveals a little bit about who we are in God's eyes. So let's try and break this down. Um, last week, for example, we looked at the plagues of water turning to blood, of the Nile producing this swarm teeming frogs all over the land, and dust that turned into gnats, these little biting flies. And what we discovered is that Pharaoh and his gods believed that they controlled life. Egyptians believed that the Nile was the center of life for the whole world, and that the Nile was actually semi-divine, and that Pharaoh had control over this. And what happened is, by showing that the Nile turned to blood and then produced these frogs that were just covering the land, is that Yahweh is showing that, no, you don't actually control the center of life, but I am the God of life. He is the source. God is the source. And we discovered that we, too, can be filled with God's life when we put our trust in his son, Jesus. So what is the significance, then, of this text of flies and disease and boils? Um, First of all, let me just ask you this question. What are some words or connotations that come to mind when I say the word judgment? Judgment. Just yell some out so everyone can hear. Judgment. Not fun. Criticism. Court. Yeah. Punishment. One more. Anybody else? Judgment. Yeah. Um, Decision. Sometimes we judge, we discern between two things. I think of the word judgmental. You know, we're being judgmental towards someone or something. Fearful. Fearful if someone's judging me. Um, Typically, it's a negative connotation that I have with the word judgment. Um, But in the Bible, judgment is not always a negative term. And and so here's a couple examples from the Psalms. Psalm 67.4. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you will judge the people, speaking of God, you, God, will judge the peoples with uprightness and guide the nations of the earth. Psalm 96, let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice, let the sea roar and all it contains, let the field exult and all that is in it, then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord, for he's coming, yea, he's coming and He's going to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in faithfulness. So these Israelites who are writing the Psalms, they're like looking forward for God to come and to judge the earth. That's not a typical Western Christian way of thinking. We try and get away from judgment, right? Now, from the perspective of people who are being oppressed by evil, though, the judgment of God is a good thing. Because God is compassionate, and he's just, and he's on the side of the brokenhearted. He's on the side of the weak. He hears the cries of those who are suffering, and he judges those who cause the suffering. God's judgment can be a good thing for those who are in trouble, because it means he will come to their rescue. In our story this evening, I believe God is challenging Pharaoh on who has the right to judge people. Last week, it was who has the right, who, who, where does life come from? Pharaoh thought it came from him and Egypt. God says, no, it comes from me. This week, I think that these three plagues talk, talk about who has the right to judge. 
Pharaoh has arrogantly exercised judgment on the Israelites. He's taken away their freedom. He's killed many of their children in the Nile River. He's tried to restrict their worship of God. And he has forced them into slave labor in one of the worst jobs in the ancient world, brick-making and pyramid-building and all this kind of stuff. Pharaoh has made himself judge over Israel, thinking that he sits as God over Israel and every living thing, or I'm sorry, as God over Egypt and every living thing in Egypt. Pharaoh thinks, this is my domain, I'm sovereign over this place, and everyone in it, I have the right to judge. Enter the flies. Now, flies are obviously flying in what? What do they fly in? The air, right? Last week. God showed his sovereignty over the water, the life-giving Nile, blood, uh, water to blood. Frogs come out of the water. Then he had Aaron strike the dust of the Eretz, the earth, and poof, the dust comes up and gnats. So he shows his mastery over water, over land, and this time over the air. The three major spheres of the cosmos in ancient thinking, the sky, the land, and the waters. God is showing himself sovereign over all of these spaces. But flies also signify something else. Judgment. In many cultures, flies are the universal sign for judgment. In fact, in Canaanite religion, Beelzebul, or Beelzebub, depending on the translation, is called Lord of the Flies, the, the God of Judgment. The double message then is that God has authority over Pharaoh and he has the authority to judge. He judges in favor of Israel who are oppressed in this situation. And he judges against Egypt who is the oppressor over Israel. Egypt is a bully. Kids, have you ever had a bully at school? And God is judging the bully. And he's coming to the aid of the ones who are being bullied. Next, God sends a sign of judgment by bringing a disease that kills many of the livestock of Egypt. Again, it doesn't affect the livestock of Israel. Livestock, of course, were extremely valuable in the ancient world. Were often used, for example, in the sale of property. Uh, Sometimes, of course, gold and silver and bronze were used in the sale of property. But more often than not, in contracts, we see, I'll give you like 25 bulls for this piece of land. And they were extremely valuable. So this plague in particular, hurts Pharaoh in his pocketbook, takes out his ability to have earning power. But more significantly, this is a judgment on Pharaoh's ability to protect his people. One of the most beloved Egyptian gods um, among the people was the goddess Hathor. Hathor was the goddess of the sky, and again, adding significance to the plague of flies, who controls the sky? It's Yahweh, not Hathor. She's also the goddess of beauty and love and joy and fertility, uh, among a lot of other things, actually, they attributed to Hathor. Um, she was the goddess that supposedly provided the good things in life for the Egyptians. And here's what she looked like in Egyptian art. Do you understand now why maybe there's a plague on cattle? So this is Hathor, and you see she's got the sun on her head that's uh, uh, showing sovereignty over sky, and she has the horns, and there's someone getting a nice drink of milk, like getting life. Let's pass, keep going. Um, Here's another depiction of Hathor. 
and this is a little bit later in history. That one was a very early dynastic picture. This one's a little later in history, and you see now it's personified as a more beautiful woman, uh, but still the horns kind of show that this is Hathor. She's the, uh, the goddess of cattle. And then the next one is the, the most stylistic depiction. And kids, what is in Hathor's hand that's long and tall? St- a staff, right. And that staff, we remember if the pharaoh would often have that and other gods would have that, that staff um, represents power and rule. And then the other thing in the hand, does anyone remember what that's called? Jonathan. The key to the Nile. It's called the Ankh. Can you say Ankh? Yeah, it's the key to the Nile. It represents life. And so Hathor is shown as, you know, goddess of life and power. And then, of course, she has the horns, and you see the cobra up there, which was the, um, the protector over the, uh, the lower Egypt, which is where the Nile Delta was. Okay, so thank you very much, Jen, for putting those up. Pharaoh represented the gods to people. So they sang his praises when things went well, when there was good crops and wine was flowing and the parties were great and everything's going well. Uh, but here, God shows that it's not... It's not Pharaoh or Hathor that can protect them or their livestock. Nothing can protect them if God is judging. And finally, we have the plague of boils. Boils are described by most Hebrew lexicons as these painful, burning sores. And we may not know exactly what they were medically, but that's not the point of the text. The point is they hurt really bad and nobody wanted them. Uh, And the biggest point is what on earth did they mean? Like, why did God choose boils on people? It's, I think it's not so much the boils. The boils are just a reminder that things aren't going your way. The point is, where did the boils come from? Uh, again, cohort kids, if you're reading that text, uh, God tells Moses and Aaron to do something to produce the boils. Do you remember what he had to do? Emma. Where did he get the dust? Does anyone remember Ruth? From the furnace. And... And the other word for furnace is kiln. What do we bake in kilns? You want to oppress my people and cause them to make bricks? Let me show you something. I'm going to take, have them take the dust of the kiln, the instruments of their oppression, and it's going to turn right on your face. Isn't that interesting? See, these plagues aren't just random, like, well, how could I hurt these people? That's not how God thinks. God is always sending a message, giving an opportunity uh, to repent or to harden yourself. These three plagues serve to show that God is faithful and just to keep his promises to his people. He promised to be with Israel, and he promised to curse those people who curse Israel. In this story, God judges the plagues, which in the natural world would affect everyone in the land, just affect Egypt and not Israel. So, that's great. That's a really interesting history lesson, Pastor Chris. What does that even mean for us? Well, I have two pieces of good news, and sandwiched in between those pieces of good news is a warning. Okay? So, let's do with the first piece of bread. Let's go open face. The first piece of bread, the good news. God is on the side of the weak, the oppressed, the vulnerable. He's on the side of the victim of systematic poverty. He's on the side of the kid who's getting bullied and beat up at school. He's on the side of the worker who's getting strong-armed and abused in the workplace. He's on the side of the oppressed. 
When our hearts then break for Syrian refugees, we can be assured that God is hearing their cries and that God is speaking to his church about what to do. He might be speaking to you. Pay attention. When we witness the repeated stories of racist violence in our culture and bigotry, we can be assured that God is watching and he will judge justly. And if you are suffering, you can be assured that God sees you and hears you. You and I may not be slaves to an evil dictator, but you may be a slave to a disease or a situation of abuse. You may feel intimidated at work. The Lord sees you, and he is the Lord of life, and he is the Lord of blessing. He is not the God of oppression. God is good and just, and he decides on behalf of the suffering. And that is very good news, because that kind of God is trustworthy. Now, that also means implicitly, so we have our one good news piece of bread. In the middle of that sandwich is a warning. Our youngest daughter, Samara, just turned three last Monday. <laughs> and she's a budding comedian, I'm pretty sure. She uh, you know, is quick wit and dry humor, and so we're at the dinner table, and she keeps on getting up and down from her chair, up and, uh, honey, please, you know, we try to use polite language, we want to treat our kids the way we expect them to treat us and other people, so please get up, please get up. Finally, I have, I do the, dads, you know this move, right, where you just firmly but not hard touch the wrist, eye contact, it's the dad, it's the dad move, honey, you need to stay in your chair. Now, Sophia, I don't want to embarrass you, sweetie, but when you were Samara's age, your lower lip would quiver when I would do that move, and you would cry, and Daddy got a little bit stern with me, and it would work, and I felt bad, but I was like, yeah, I'm still the man. <laughs> Samara, Samara matches my stare and says, you're not my mom. <laughs> Which... I'm sure she got from her middle sister, who's always getting a bust around by her big sister. So, (laughs) you know my mom. The point is that deep down, we all want to be our own judge and jury. We do not like people telling us what to do. And when his commands are different than our desires... Deep down, we don't even like God to tell us what to do. Later on in the Bible, in the story of Israel, God would actually come and judge them. In Deuteronomy 28, for example, God warns the Israelites that if they don't obey, he's going to send judgments against them, and they're pretty horrible. There's a huge list in Deuteronomy 28. One of them, ironically, is boils like I sent on the Egyptians. God is on the side of the oppressed and the suffering. Israel got in trouble when they began to oppress the weak and the poor among them. They set themselves against God when they worshipped idols. And when their leaders got fat and rich while people suffered from lack of food and lack of dignity, they did not do what God was telling them to do. In reality... You and I, and I'm a pretty, I, maybe I used to be, I, I consider myself a pretty compliant person. Like, I've been a rule, I used to be in the Coast Guard, I kind of, you know, military, mind, I, 
I, I, I don't really like authority either. There's some of you worse than me at that. Deep down, we're all somewhat like Pharaoh in the sense that we want to make our own judgments. We believe deep down, we may not even articulate this, but we believe deep down that we have the right to live however we want to live, to do with my body. I mean, that's a slogan in our culture as well as personal. I have the right to do with my body whatever I darn well please. We believe we have the final say about how we spend our money, how we use our time, what we do with our life. Our motto in the Western world is live and let live. Do whatever you want unless you hurt somebody else. Freedom or die. Little Braveheart, come on. That's why we love that movie so much. Freedom! And what we fail to see, I think, is that our search for independence is killing us. We're in the most isolated, cut-off culture in a long time. We're cutting ourselves off from community in our search for autonomy. And we're silently saying to others, I'll tolerate you, but don't get in my way. Don't you cross, don't you have an opinion that crosses what I want to do? Because then you're, you're treading on sacred territory. The problem is, as followers of Jesus, if we read his word, it says some different things than what I, how I want to live my life sometimes. If this, is a, if this was a world of getting what we deserve all the time, we would be in serious trouble. Many world religions function in this way. There's this overarching idea of karma, that you get what you deserve. That in the end, there's this weighing of your good deeds versus your bad deeds. And if the bad deeds outweigh the good deeds, you're somehow in trouble. In fact, that's very Egyptian. I don't know if you knew that, but uh, one of the Egyptian beliefs is in the afterlife, you go down and there's the scale. You see this in hieroglyphs all the time. They put the heart, your heart, your leb on the scale. And if it makes the thing go, if it's too heavy with sin, um, you're in trouble. If, you, if it's light with good deeds, light soul, then you're, you're, you're well off in the afterlife. Anyhow, um, What's interesting is that even in, I, I would consider our culture a fairly secular society. I think the, the latest numbers are like 5.5% of Whatcom County self-identifies as Christian. So that's, you know, 94.5% say they're not Christian. In a fairly secular culture like ours, where not just Christianity, but most religions are viewed with suspicion and even disdain, there's still this sense of, of karma. The, um, I have friends and acquaintances who are very irreligious. In fact, a little antagonistic, like slightly make fun of me for what I do. But yet there's this anxiety about feeling like they have to do enough good things to feel okay about getting up in the morning and being an okay person. And to me, that sounds far more unbelievable that the universe, whatever that means, is somehow weighing your good deeds and your bad deeds. That sounds far more unbelievable, since the universe never wrote a book um, that we could read, uh, than, than believing in Jesus, who actually came as a human being and lived among us, and we have all these witnesses. But I digress. We have to come, we have to, come to grips, I think, with our own situation before we can appreciate the good news of the gospel. And the gospel is not a set of rules that if you, if you follow them, you're going to turn out all right. And the gospel is not a message that says, you are in trouble with God, but if you believe the right things, 
he's going to look the other way. The gospel is that Jesus has been sent to judge. And I know that that's weird, especially based on that question I asked about judgment, because we have a negative view of judgment. The gospel says that Jesus came to judge. In John chapter 5, which Jason read earlier, Jesus says, Not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. And what I hear in that is that Jesus is judge, and so I wonder, how can I get on his good side? That's because very few of us actually believe inside here how good he is. It's hard to believe it. It's hard to really see, to receive it in our hearts, how good he is. This blew my mind as I was preparing. When Jesus judges, right, he judges on the side of the oppressed. We've seen that track record all throughout scripture. He judges on the side of the slave. Brothers and sisters, without Jesus, you and I are slaves to sin and death. Slaves. You cannot get out of that in your own strength. Have you ever tried living without sin, a sinful thought, a sinful deed, a sinful non-deed, for even a day, If you have, you know the definition of failure. (laughs) Have you tried to be generous with everyone, selfless in your actions, pure in your thoughts, patient in your dealings, compassionate under stress, kind in every word and every deed and every look you give someone? Our parents and our children, our co-workers, our neighbors, our classmates, our friends, your pastor, our politicians, without Jesus, we are all slaves to sin. The good news then is, from John chapter 5, is that Jesus came to judge sin and death. See, in him, he's not judging you, he's judging sin and death, the oppressor of you. That means that in Jesus, you and I don't need to live in fear and shame. The judgment of Jesus over sin means that you and I are new creations, set free to be alive, to enjoy the goodness of creation, to share without fear of never having enough, to love and show compassion for people who are different than us. That might even make you feel uncomfortable. That's that last piece of bread, by the way. There is this warning of judgment, but the good news is that Jesus comes and he judges on your behalf when you place your faith in him. And so that leaves me with three questions. First of all, do you believe that? Do you believe that in Christ you have been set free? That you are a new creation? That you no longer have to be a slave to sin and death? That's something I I feel like I'm growing in on a regular basis. If you believe it a little bit, I pray that you continue to grow. And if you're hearing this for the first time, and it's true for you, oh, bless you. Talk to me about it. I would love to hear your story and to just go deeper with you in this. Second, if you believe you are made new in Christ, 
how, did, how will that change the way you interact with people? Maybe you're in a situation in your life in just one little sphere where you're seeing people as competition. But if you're God's beloved, if he's judged in your favor, if you're a new creation, how could we see, see people as those we could collaborate with, learn from, share with? Instead of seeing people as threats, how might we bless them? And third, if you believe you're made new because of Jesus, how might you be able to share that good news with other people who don't yet know that Jesus came to set them free? You know, it's not like you're trying to sell like the worst product in the world. Um, you know, like a Volkswagen. I'm just kidding. Uh, or a PC. Oh, I'm really digging a hole. <clears throat> no, you're a sh- you get to share life-giving good news with people. That Jesus died for them. That he loves them. That he is for them. I mean, most people, in fact, some of us, as I talk, and in fact, as I inspect my own mind, my own thinking, most of us live in this semi-fear that God's not really for me. He's really for you. He's really for the people in your life who don't yet know he's for them. And he's really for the worst people in your life that you think would never know him. (laughs) He's really for them. He wants to rescue them. He wants to set them free. So how, Letters Reads Covenant Church, can we be a community that invites other people to share our life together? I love you guys. I think this is a great community. I love our shared meals together. I love our men's retreats and women's retreats and serving together in small groups, getting together for pints and coffee. I love all that stuff. But we don't exist for each other. God has given us life in it as a community to be a beacon for other people who need the same kind of life that you're experiencing here. Who is in your life that you can be praying? Not that you have to share some kind of sermon with. But how could you just pray, Lord, I honestly, I've got people like this in my life. Let me just share one of my prayers. Lord, I am struggling to believe that X, Y, and Z will ever believe in you. Would you soften their heart? That's a prayer you can pray. It's probably honest for most of us. Um, There's very few people I've met anymore that are lukewarm about Jesus. It's either like, yeah, I love him. You're crazy for the, you know what I mean? It's like, we, we need to pray to the only one who can soften a heart. That's the Lord. I encourage you to do that. Who might Jesus be prompting you to pray for, you to share with? Lord, thank you that you are the God who continues to speak, the God who continues to woo hearts and minds and souls toward yourself. I pray for me and my brothers and sisters here uh, that you would help us to more fully receive the good news that you are for us and that we are free in you. But help us not to hoard that to ourselves. Would you put in our hearts a passion to see others come to know you, to see others come to become part of our community? that is trying to emulate you and to be a life-giving place. Bless you.